You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to Patreon.com slash Ancient History Fangirl to learn more. No one has ever more richly deserved to be hacked to death in a bath. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We are absolutely thrilled to welcome back to the podcast the number one internationally best-selling author, Jennifer Saint. I'm so happy to be on again. Thank you. We're so happy. (laughs) Jennifer is the author of Ariadne, the incredible number one bestseller here in the UK. Um, It was also shortlisted for the Waterstones Book of the Year. Ariadne follows the story of the Cretan princesses Ariadne and Phaedra. And her most recent book, Electra, is out now in bookshops. Jennifer, thank you again so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, I'm so, so happy to be back here. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome anytime you want to visit. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well. So when did your fascination with mythology and uh, folklore begin? Before I can remember, um, I've been interested in Greek mythology. Um, and I, I can't remember if I said this last time I came on, but we always used to go on holiday to Greek islands and to Cyprus when I was a kid. Um, so my parents were taking me around ancient ruins and kind of telling me those stories. Yeah, I, so I remember being like this big um, auditorium amphitheatre in Cyprus, in Korean. And just, yeah, so it's, it's just always been part of the stories that I love to hear and then ended up loving to tell as well. Greek mythology is full of epic female characters. Um, who would you say is your favorite, or do you have one? Oh, um, that is a really difficult question. <laughs> because I think my favorite female character tends to be the one that I'm currently writing about. Um, I get really um, you know, obsessed with that particular character and really into their head. And then you know, when I start writing another book, then it all happens and I fall in love all over again. So I find it really difficult to pick um, just one favourite. And I think if you if I give you an answer, next time I get asked, it'll probably be somebody completely different. <laughs> um, but I have such a fondness and always have done for Cassandra, who is one of the characters, one of the narrators in Electra. She has got such a kind of a compelling plight that she's cursed by Apollo to be able to see the future, but also that nobody will ever believe her. I think there's something so irresistible about getting drawn into that kind of situation where she can see um, that her city is doomed, but nobody will help her to do anything to avert it. Yeah, um, I I just read your book last night, really, really enjoyed it. Well, I finished it last night. I definitely started it prior to last night. And um, I was thinking about the character of Cassandra. Um, what challenges are there in writing a character like her? Like, what did you uncover that you weren't expecting? Well, the main challenge is writing a character that can see the future, because it's so difficult to create suspense and tension if um, if the character knows everything that's coming. So I found that very difficult. And I think it helped to make her more of an unreliable narrator, to make those visions that come almost like a madness, because that's often how she's portrayed as, as a madwoman, as this kind of hysteric as well, so that it's not a really clear cut. I know exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen, because then the book doesn't have very uh, very much tension. 
So that was really difficult. And I think also because her, her situation, her life is such a tragic one, there is so much dark in it, so much shade. And it was very difficult to find the points of light in Cassandra's life, which I did really want to dig out. Those kind of moments of connection that she has with other people, even though she's got this terrible barrier whereby she knows that they don't take her seriously, that they're not going to believe her. But she has this longing, I think, to to belong because she does she wants her city to be saved she does want to be a part of it I mean that doesn't sound like it's bringing out very many points of light <laughs> but I did think the fact that she has that, that she um, has got this kind of huge capacity for love despite all the terrible things that have happened to her I found to be the, the kind of comfort in creating her the other thing that I found with your portrayal of Cassandra that I, I know it's part of her character but also it must have been kind of hard to write is that her visions do come true. Like people do notice her visions coming true and they still don't believe her when she says things. How was that to write? Just in terms of like plausible deniability um, and making it sort of just, well, people don't believe her because she does seem like she has a mental illness and there's, you know, some discrediting there versus this is actually the curse from the God. Yeah, I think that there's definitely a balance, isn't there? And there's also the fact that that she's a woman and perhaps her word is going to be taken less seriously for that reason as well. I didn't include her twin brother in the novel um, just for trying to make things less complicated. But in mythology, she has a twin brother who is believed, right? And so I think there's something quite telling in that, that um, that she can say all these things and be proven correct, but nobody takes her seriously. And yet he is much more easily believed. But I think that it's to make it part of the curse, the, the sort of the appearance of madness is part of that curse as well, isn't it? That Apollo is making her seem like somebody who can't be trusted, who can't be believed, um, discrediting her with the fact that his visions may be incoherent, that it's not clear. So I think kind of I tried to make them seem like these fits of madness that descend on her because that seemed to be the way that it would work, that people wouldn't go, hang on, Cassandra said that and so it has come to be. Maybe we should take her more seriously next time. I've always been fascinated with Cassandra as well. I kind of feel like she gets a real a real bum rap a lot of the time is like she wanted to be a priestess and she asked for this and then she got it and wasn't happy and it's kind of like well she you know she turns down a god who does that and there's a lot of fault and shame in older narratives on Cassandra as a character and I think the way you handled that was so well done it's been like the best portrayal of kind of her rationale for what happens oh thank you oh, I'm so glad I think I mean she's she's put in this impossible situation where she wants to be a priestess and part of that is is choosing this this life of of virginity isn't it of kind of of a life where she doesn't have sex with anybody and then Apollo comes along and demands it and what what does she do because if she gives in to him she's breaking the the vow that she has sworn so I felt like, you know, she's in a catch-22. She can't win either way. And we know what the Greek gods are like. You feel that she's probably going to be punished whatever she does. Yeah, and, and her her rationale for that is, if I sleep with you, undoubtedly I'm going to get pregnant. I mean, you don't have this in there, but undoubtedly it's Greek mythology. She will get pregnant and she will be thrown out of the temple. And no one will believe the baby's Apollos. Or maybe they will believe it's Apollos, but she'll be shamed. And if she doesn't, like, how do you say no? And I think it's super fascinating. Did you look into the lives of priestesses and oracles at this point in time to draw off of anything? Because we we've just done a lot of stuff on different priestesses of different goddesses and gods, and their lives were really interesting. And again, a lot of catch-22s. Yeah, I did. And I thought that it must have been such an appealing option um, for so many women to choose a life where you don't have to get married. I think that was kind of where I really found an understanding of it with Cassandra, with why she'd want that kind of life. I thought there would be so many women who wouldn't want to get married for so many reasons. Um, there could be women who weren't interested in men for a start. There could be women who see the kind of misery that so many women endured who don't want to be married off to, you know, who knows who, chosen by their father, so much older than them. And the kind of fear, um, I always come back to, and I was talking to Elodie Harper about this, about this kind of horror that we both have of the idea of giving birth in the ancient world. I have that in the modern world. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, slightly better in the modern world, but you know, it's such, such a perilous situation to be in. Yeah, sometimes now as well. Um, that you you just think um, the life of a priestess sounds incredibly appealing. I think for many reasons, so I could really understand why she would she would choose that. Absolutely. I remember when I was younger thinking like, oh, I don't know if I'd want that life. But the older I get, the more I'm like, you have agency. You're not going to be married off as a bargaining piece to someone. In Cassandra's place, she might be sent really far from home because she's a princess. And you don't have to deal with the maybe 50-50, maybe 70-30 of you dying in childbirth. Because it's not like women are choosing between getting married to someone that you love and choose for yourself and becoming a priestess in a temple and never having love. Like marriage was not about love back then. So it's like choosing between you know, if they had the choice at all, choosing between being married off to somebody that you you weren't going to love, like this was not a passion love match, or not having to deal with that, which seems like a much more appealing option to me, I gotta say. Yeah, and may- maybe having some element of kind of status and, and respect and of kind of doing, well, doing a job as well, um, having that option in your life. So yeah, that, that seemed like a really rational decision for Cassandra to make, unfortunately didn't turn out very well that's Greek tragedy well it's Apollo (laughs) and it seems like a very rational choice for a lot of women in the ancient world you know and in medieval times when women chose to be nuns and nunneries and things like that like it does make a lot of sense to me why women would choose to do this so what women in Greek mythology do you feel get an especially bad uh, reputation and deserve to have their story told or rehabilitated so I think um, it would be definitely Clytemnestra as a woman who is um, incredibly justified, I think, in what she does. I had a feeling you'd say that. <laughs> um, gets, a, gets maligned. And obviously her actions are on the murderous side, but not without good reason. And I think especially the way that she's uh, she and Penelope are kind of held up as these contrasting characters. You have a good wife who stays faithful for 20 years who uses her intelligence to fend off the suitors and keep uh, Ithaca safe for her husband to come home, while Clytemnestra spends the time that Agamemnon is at war plotting his death with her lover. And so obviously is presented as, as very scandalous, very shocking, very horrifying, very violent. But I, I just felt when I was when I was reading her story, I've just always felt like that her actions are so very sympathetic kind of however she might go about them for a start I suppose her her options are kind of limited she doesn't have the option of divorcing Agamemnon what can she do about the fact that the man that she's married has tricked her into bringing her daughter along to be sacrificed like an animal in order for him to go off and fight a war that is of no benefit to her of no interest to her and also uses her sister Helen as a pretext because I think it's so. And Helen is an, is another one. I suppose those two sisters, Clytemnestra and Helen, both get this kind of reputation as as kind of wicked women in the ancient world. But really, is the army sailing a thousand ships to go and restore one wife to her husband, or is she quite a convenient excuse for them to go and wage a war of conquest and? to raise this city to the ground in order to take what they want from it. So the fact that Iphigenia is sacrificed in order for that war to take place, I just felt myself getting angrier and angrier on Clytemnestra's behalf. I found her voice so very easy to find. I found like where she was coming from very straightforward to imagine. In the in the mythology of Iphigenia and her being sacrificed, there's one myth wherein she is literally killed on the altar and they get the favourable winds. And they sail off to Troy, and that's the end of Iphigenia, the story of a good girl who goes bravely to be killed. There's another sort of, I want to call it revisionist myth, but I I don't know exactly what time it came out. But this myth says that Iphigenia is on the altar. She's bravely gone to be killed. It's very um, Abraham and Isaac, sort of uh, Old Testament stuff that we're talking about here. And all of a sudden, at the last minute, Artemis intervenes. She puts down, I think it's a white sheep deer or something like that to be sacrificed in her in her place and um, Iphigenia is taken away to I think it's Taurus where she lives there or she stays with Artemis as one of her maidens something like that and I have always felt the more true to me myth is that Iphigenia died that day and that later on people have like tried to rehabilitate Agamemnon a little bit with this other myth but I really wanted to hear Jenny's thoughts on it like 
I can only have these 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 arguments with people who are as nerdy as me. <laughs> yeah, I find that version such a cop out. I completely agree that um I mean, first of all, when did Artemis ever take pity on anyone? She's not exactly known for being merciful. Um and you know, I think she she doesn't forgive. Um I think she would definitely make Agamemnon go through with it. And it feels like another another kind of cover up, another oh, it's okay, everything's fine, Agamemnon's not really that bad. Everything else Agamemnon does in his life is terrible. So why wouldn't he do this as well? No, I have I have absolutely no patience with that version of the myth whatsoever. Yeah, I, I agree. It just seems like um, they're just really trying to make this guy palatable to an ancient audience, to a modern audience. I'm not sure where the origins of it are, but yeah, I, I don't buy it either. No, I, I don't. You can't make Agamemnon palatable. Like, being willing to do that isn't about as bad as doing it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, his motivations, his his actions are the same regardless. But um, no, I, I think it kind of, it's another way of vilifying Clytemnestra as well, isn't it? Kind of, you know, her daughter didn't die. She was taken away. She's living a, you know, a great life with Artemis somewhere. So what's Clytemnestra's problem? And it's absolutely nonsense. Did you have an easier time getting into Clytemnestra's head and her motivations than Electra's head and her motivations? Because we do have like, you know, parallel family killing situations here. But one may have been a little bit more easy to write than the other. Definitely. And that's kind of why the novel ended up being about Electra in the end, because she was the more difficult character to find a way into. Um, And by the time I did, I was so deep into who she was and so interested. I found her I suppose because she was difficult, more intriguing. And so the novel really kind of builds and builds around her. It doesn't really start out being about Electra, but it gets there. And yeah, I think there, I think what really struck me is how many similarities there are between these two women. And that's probably why they can never understand each other's point of view, kind of where they come up against each other. It's because they are so incapable of believing themselves to be wrong Um, and they're so absolutely determined on their own path of what they see as right that they're never going to be diverted off course and that's that's where they absolutely clash but I mean it's it's harder to get to understand where Electra is coming from because for a start she is so obsessed with Agamemnon and everything that we know about Agamemnon is that he is not liked really by anybody else is he he's not liked in the Iliad by any of the um any of the Greek army he's he's responsible for everything stalling for Achilles having to go off um to um in in you know quite an epic sulk um over over this quarrel over over a woman and obviously, it's all about a woman that they both regard as nothing more than just a prize, you know, not a human being in her own right. So so there's never anything to sympathise with in Electra's devotion to her father. But I, I suppose um, where I could find that to be believable was the fact that she doesn't know him because he's not there for 10 years. So she can make up her own version of him. And the version that she makes up is obviously a much better man than Agamemnon really is. So she was definitely... She's definitely difficult. She's so puritanical. She's so fanatical. She's so obsessed in so many ways and, you know, completely single minded, which makes her hard. But I think that um, I, I did just end up feeling feeling sympathy for her anyway, even if she is very misguided in a lot of things that she does. Well, in basically everything that she does. You do understand that um, she... She has this this dream life where her father never went away to war and everything was perfect and everything that's gone wrong in her life is because he left and if only he would come back. But when he does come back, he's taken from her by her own mother before anything can be remedied. And um, that betrayal is just something she can't ever overcome. Well, and also I think it's so relatable. Like, I love my mother. I really, really love my mom. But... I don't know, my late teens, early 20s, I was really awful to my mom. Like, I remember getting to about like 26 or 27 and calling my mother up in the middle of the day. I think she was at work and I was just like, I I just need to tell you I'm very sorry. 
But it is one of those things where when you're younger, I was like, I could do everything better. Everything would be so much better. And Electra has a little bit of that going on, or at least that's what I always see. Yeah. Oh, no, I think that's so crucial to, to understanding her as well, is that she is a teenager when this is happening. And yeah, teenagers are, are terrible and don't see things clearly. Um, but certainly in my experience being a teenager, not all teenagers, sorry, but uh, from what I remember. Yeah, and it does kind of make sense why she would feel the way she does about her dad, because as you said, her dad was like the idealized one. Like she has to be around her mom every day and see her flaws. But her mother is like obviously really suffering because of the death of Iphigenia. So like she's obviously not particularly present. So Electra can kind of lose herself in these fantasies of of this amazing dad who's going to come back someday and be the perfect parent. Yeah, exactly. She, She never has to see any of his flaws, which are numerous hey guys it is ryan i'm not sure if you know this about me but i'm a bit of a fun fanatic when i can i like to work but i like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun chumba casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So you have the Arignes. Am I saying that right? The Arignes in your story? Obviously, the terrible furies. Do you have any favorite female monsters in Greek mythology? And what can they tell us about ancient Greek people's fears and anxieties around women and their place in society? Oh, wow, that's such a great question. Yeah, I, well, I really enjoyed writing writing them. Um, now I'm really cautious about saying their name because I've realised I'm not completely sure how to pronounce. You can say the kindly ones because that was their other name. Yeah, I think the fact the fact that their other name is the kindly ones really shows us something about anxieties around um, women. That kind of idea that if you call them that, that maybe they won't be so terrible that you can kind of try to to label them as something different, possibly, and kind of appease them in that way. I think it's so interesting that that's the other name for the Puris. And I really, I really liked bringing them in, because that is what they do. They avenge. There wasn't kind of a complex backstory to uncover. I really liked the idea of just these agents of pure vengeance and that is what they do. Um, they are going to come and punish Orestes for committing matricide without taking into account any of the reasons, any of the motivations. Um, I just think it's kind of enjoyable sometimes to have something that is purely just this great force of violence to just create. It's It's so dark. It's so brutal that I really enjoyed that. It's really interesting that you say kind of female monsters and what do they show about anxieties around women? Um, because if I think about that in relation to the Furies, maybe there is 
kind of a fear that if if women get the opportunity that there might be so much untapped anger and Clytemnestra is an example of that isn't she that she's left her husband does not supervise her for 10 years and in that time she assumes power she takes a lover she plans his murder she can carry out this um this dreadful act is there kind of a little bit of anxiety about what women will do if you let them out of their out of your sight um yeah, there's a real fear of women's anger there, you know, and it, it shows up in other mythologies around the world as well. We were seeing that in a lot of our research for women of myth. Yeah, because it's, it's quite interesting, I suppose, that the Furies are women, that they wouldn't create that, that force, those creatures, that they wouldn't make them male, that they are female, when female anger is something that is usually a lot more suppressed. Yeah, and this is a story, you know, the House of Atreus, the story of Electra and Clytemnestra, this is a story about female anger. Yeah, definitely. That's that's something that um, really drew me to the story. I thought it would just be so interesting to explore that idea of female rage. It's interesting because the, the Furies haunt Orestes for killing his mother, but they don't come and haunt Clytemnestra for killing Agamemnon. No, and they don't haunt Agamemnon for killing Iphigenia. Is, is that because that's a sacrifice ordered by a god, I wonder? But yeah, why don't they come after Clytemnestra? That's a really good question. They don't come after Medea either when she kills her sons. Isn't it because they are specifically about killing your parents? Uh, yeah, there's def- it's definitely blood-related, isn't it? So that would be why they wouldn't come after Clytemnestra. But yeah, if it's specifically killing parents, that would make sense. Medea as well... She goes off under the protection of Helios, doesn't she? Yeah, and she's going to get purification when she goes as well, so she will be okay. There's all these, you know, anti-Furious loopholes. <laughs> yeah, the ways to get out of it. That's how it is with all good monsters, Jenny. Like, come on. <laughs> That's right. There has to be some method of defense, right? <laughs> Are there other female monsters that capture your imagination from the mythology? I mean, they really, I, I like, I hesitate to say it because I just worry it's too obvious. But I mean, I would, I would obviously bring up Medusa as um, a female monster who is such a symbol of all the kind of things that we've been talking about. I guess there's that real parallel with Cassandra that she's come upon in a temple by a god that Medusa is not able to refuse the way that Cassandra is. I mean, how Cassandra, I suppose Apollo doesn't need to, doesn't need to accept her refusal but he does, and he decides to punish her a different way. Whereas Poseidon, I guess, doesn't have that level of restraint that Apollo has. And so Medusa's turned into a monster then by Athena. And there's just so much in there. There's the kind of internalised misogyny of Athena, that she punishes the victim, and all the rest of it, that she's literally made a monster in punishment for what Poseidon does to her. But I didn't know if she was just too obvious a, a, a monster to bring up and if I should try and think more creatively outside the box. No, she's a good one. Medusa is a monster, but she's also a woman who was wronged. And that kind of makes her into a monster, according to the mythology. Yeah, and it's and it's when she looks at men and they're turned to stone. There's no defense against that, is there? And, it, and there's something very much like kind of she sees them and they are punished. Um, and I, I also, I really, I really like the monster of Scylla in the Odyssey. I really love what Madeline Miller did with her in Circe and kind of fleshing out that backstory. I really enjoyed that portrayal of her as what she was before she was turned into a monster. And then I think there's a kind of suggestion of perhaps she really enjoys the power that she then wields when she is this six-headed creature um, devouring men on ships. Well, again, so you can kind of you can become a priestess to avoid men, or you can become, you know, a terrible sea monster and eat them. I mean, that might be the dream. <laughs> 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 okay, so in, in Electra, you focus at uh, some of the women who are at the heart of the Trojan War, but it's not necessarily the women you'd expect. Your narrators are Clytemnestra, Cassandra, and Electra, and they haven't had their stories told in the same ways as Helen or Penelope. What was it like to dig into the mythology and stories of these women who sometimes kind of get left out of the whole mythology cycle? That's why I wanted to tell their story, especially Electra. I just felt like I hadn't seen her side of the story before. And so that was something that I really wanted to find out about. And actually discovering that 
was quite difficult because I used really the kind of the Athenian tragedies, so Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides, to puzzle out her character. And she's quite different in all three of those plays. There's less of a consensus, I feel, on who Electra is and why she acts the way that she does. So I found it um, really useful to kind of pull out different aspects of her from those plays. And I love how Euripides kind of makes her as a as you would expect Euripides to do, I think. Just that bit more nuanced, that bit more complex. She is so intent upon avenging her father. But then when it comes to it, she has a moment of conflict, a moment of kind of, this is a terrible thing that I've done. And I liked to see that in Electra, a bit more complexity, that she's not just this kind of one-note character. Because that just gets a little bit tedious to have someone who never doubts themselves at all um I think that you have to you have to bring that in so yeah so so yeah with with Electra um I mean I really regretted the decision so many times while I was writing because I just thought how on earth am I ever going to get to the like the center of a character like this and there were quite a lot of times along the way where I just thought yeah I wish I just stuck with Clytemnestra um she's she's so much more straightforward. Um, but then um, for Clytemnestra, there is a real difficulty, I think, in understanding why she's, what she does is motivated by maternal love. She loves Iphigenia so much that she cannot um, rest until she's avenged her death. But then her other children end up completely estranged from her. She has three other children, Electra, Chrysothemis and Orestes, um, all of whom end up despising her and she has no relationship with them at all so I thought that that was that was the kind of mystery of Clytemnestra how on earth you could be such a devoted mother on one hand but completely lose a connection with all of your surviving children on the other and I felt that that was um you know in part at least a response to the terrible trauma that she experienced that she loved her daughter so much and when she lost her how could she ever expose herself to loving in that same way again? Because any of her children could be taken from her. So there was definitely that kind of drew me into Clytemnestra more, that kind of contradiction in her character. And I really wanted to have women at the heart of this story who took action as well. I think um, I wanted something quite different to what I'd done before with Ariadne where the women were so much uh, Ariadne and Phaedra, although they they do want to take action, they do want to challenge the injustices and the restrictions of the world that they're in, the odds were so much against them in Ariadne. And that was really, the gods were so much more present, so much closer. The gods are very present in Electra, but they're that one step removed. They're kind of less accessible, less understandable in their actions they are so cold and they're so cruel and it feels therefore with the gods being at that further remove that it's so much a story of human failings as well of not just we are in a society or a world where everything's ranged against us but also we are making some decisions and some of those decisions are not going to turn out very well and they're, they're set on these paths that they, they can't deviate from or they won't deviate from rather that lead to their own downfall there's just that kind of just tragic irony that is, is quite irresistible where where you can see how these characters could change things for themselves but they just are incapable or they just won't and Cassandra's slightly outside of that because she her her tragedy has definitely been visited upon her by a god but then her her situation is so very unusual I, wa I really wanted to go to Troy. I really, I just think if you are interested in classics, you you love the Trojan War, you can't help it. But I really wanted to see it from inside Troy. That was something I thought seemed like a different kind of take on the Trojan siege as well, to actually be within the city walls, to see the Greek army outside and to feel that claustrophobia and that panic and that terror which is enhanced for Cassandra because she knows exactly how it's all going to end. What's interesting about Cassandra um, is that in, well, in the story, and I think possibly in the mythology largely, I'm not 100% sure, but the connection between Cassandra and mental illness 
I was wondering if you have any thoughts about um, what her story can tell us about how people in the ancient world saw people with mental illnesses. Yeah, I mean, I would assume, because it's difficult to know, I suppose, if somebody like Cassandra could be an example of how somebody with a mental illness could have been treated, if, if it would have been seen as an affliction from the gods. I mean, presumably so right that that seems to be the way through history more generally that you'd have kind of I'm thinking of kind of in Christianity of like exorcisms of people and so on and this kind of idea of possession yeah I think that she her ostracism and the the kind of callous way that she's treated probably does tell us that if you had any kind of mental illness in the ancient world would you be blamed for it would you be um stigmatized for it and treated as though this is your fault the gods have brought this upon you what did you do wrong and therefore not not looked after not given any compassion not really given any care a really frightening thought Yeah, because the impression that I get, and I'm not sure I haven't done a deep dive on this, is that it could have been seen as something from the gods, but that would not necessarily be seen as a good thing. Yeah, exactly. It's a curse or a punishment. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Yeah, so talking about curses... The story of the curse of the house of Atreus is is a real dark one. What brought you into this multi-generational curse and made you think, this is the story for my second novel? <laughs> okay, weirdly, actually, it wasn't really the actual um, kind of Greek mythology that made me want to tell this story. I was an English teacher before I was an author, and one of my favourite things to teach was Macbeth, and the idea of finding a Greek myth with a curse was something that I was really eager to do. And so that's kind of where I started. I just thought, you know, I would love to have that idea where there is there is this curse, there is this kind of malign supernatural influence, and it's going to make people behave in these terrible ways. And the House of Atreus fit that criteria so well. It's so extreme. It's so incredibly gruesome. It was one of those, one of those things where when... I had um, one of my early readers, um, I always get a friend of mine and my husband to read who don't know very much about Greek mythology, because I always think that's a really good test of kind of how is going to come across somebody who, who doesn't have the existing knowledge already. And it's one of those things where she was texting me the whole time when she got to the bits with um, the curse of the House of Atreus, just going like, what? <laughs> um, like, what the fuck is going on um, with this story? This is this is incredibly dark and just beyond anything that you'd expect, which I think um, I wanted to be really careful not to veer off into the melodramatic. So the way that it starts with Tantalus, this kind of ancestor of Agamemnon, who offends the gods by deciding for no very clear reason that he's going to murder his own infant son and serve him up as a stew to the gods, just to kind of see if they notice it's a weird flex i think the way i always 
read it somewhere was interpreted as he was trying to be like smarter than the gods like ha 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 i am better than you you'll never know that it's human you're eating but it's such an odd flex yeah a really strange choice to go for um then you know um i always yeah i love stories about the underworld i love all the things that go on in tartarus i love how the punishments fit the crime in such elegant ways um, so I love that then Tantalus is condemned um, in the underworld to stand in a lake but be perpetually dying of thirst. I just think that's so cruel and so very, very fitting. And then, of course, his son turns out to be not a particularly virtuous man either, who really, really unpleasantly decides that he's going to murder a rival suitor by promising his charioteer that um, if he gets to marry this woman he will let his charioteer, his servant, have the first night with her, which is fairly gross. And then double-crosses him and murders him and then incurs another curse, like kind of doubling down. Um, Your family is all being cursed again. Like your father was so terrible that he would curse the rest of your line. And then you've gone and done something and incurred somebody else to curse you with their dying breath. Well done. And then it all continues. And... um, then you get Atreus, who is the father of Agamemnon and Menelaus, and his rivalry with his brother over who's going to get the throne. And they end up, somebody murders somebody else's children. Atreus murders Thyestes' children and serves them up to him again at another banquet. So the fact that this is something that would happen twice in a family's history, it kind of, it veers into the, the lurid and kind of the ludicrous as well. So I wanted to kind of keep the really dark gothic elements of it, but I to kind of make it more this kind of this like almost like a spooky story that Clytemnestra is told, but she doesn't take seriously until she's too deep in it. And then she looks at the man she's married and she realizes, yes, you are descended from people who would kill their own children. And he goes and, and does it to her. Yeah, it's, it's it's really, really dark. I do have this moment where I just keep thinking like, how do these women get stuck with these men? <laughs> like, well, men are not like that in the ancient world in some way or another. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. It's, I guess it's the Helen of it all. Like, why does Helen choose Menelaus? She's in such a unique position. So I thought with Helen, she's the daughter of Zeus. So, you know, not just not just the daughter of a god, but Zeus, like the, you know, the, the kind of the king of all the Olympian gods. And so she must feel that she has some great destiny ahead of her. Whereas the sons of Zeus go off and have all of these great legends and great stories told about her. She's not in that same position. She's not going to go off and kind of achieve all of these um, heroic feats. What is she going to do instead? My take on Menelaus from everything I'd read was that he just seemed like a very ineffectual kind of a man and I've read a few different versions of him but I found that in the Iliad he just um, doesn't really seem to achieve anything he kind of tries to fight these duels and then they don't come to anything he's never made much of an impression on me and so I thought well yeah why would somebody like Helen choose him and I thought well perhaps she would choose him because he came across to her as somebody who wouldn't cause her any trouble, who wouldn't get in the way if she decided that she was going to go off and pursue more of a destiny in in keeping with her parentage, but that she, she miscalculated because, as it turned out, when she did leave with Paris, he was prepared to come after her. Yeah, it's just a difficult one for me to wrap my brain around, especially because he becomes king because of his marriage to her. Like everything gets passed on to it's just it's such a weird pairing. And I get it's because they want, you know, both Agamemnon and and Menelaus to be kings of, of really of places that at this point in time in archaic Greece have a lot of power. And so they, they have a lot of agency over the rest of the Greek kings. But it just it's not it's odd. Maybe as well, if she knew that Menelaus, if, if she chose Menelaus, she wouldn't have to leave. Because if she'd picked one of the other suitors, she would have gone with them. But for whatever reason, I guess because Menelaus didn't have his own kingdom, that he would come to Sparta. That could be a way of her of her staying where she where she was happy. Speaking of guys who were dicks, um, <laughs> Agamemnon is, in our opinion, one of the more dickish guys in Greek mythology. Not as bad as Theseus, but up there. What did you find in your research about him? And what do you think of him now? 
I mean, nothing redeeming. I never found any like nice story about Agamemnon. Nothing that shared him in. Zero redeeming qualities. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Um, oh, and he's just, I mean, not as bad as Theseus. I'm, I'm not totally sure. Because, you know, the person that he kills is his own daughter. That is pretty heartless. And all for the sake of going to war to cause even more devastation. Um, there's there's really like there's nothing justifiable and um you know is the reason that Artemis has demanded the sacrifice of Iphigenia because he said he was a better hunter than Artemis like not only is he um you know awful callous terrible parent but also so arrogant and so incredibly stupid and uh, obviously everything that he does in the Iliad he does it again doesn't he he takes a priest's daughter and brings about a plague upon all of the Greeks and then steals Achilles' prize woman. I hate, I hate all of that. Um, you know, his captive. So everything he does is just, it's all about um, aggrandizing himself and he never, ever thinks about the consequences. He seems like, I think, possibly just one of the most incredibly stupid characters of Greek mythology who really just never learns from any of his mistakes and no one has ever more richly deserved to be hacked to death in a bath. His behavior is kind of baffling. And the other thing that's baffling to me is how Clytemnestra could ever be interpreted as the villain in this story when we know all this about Agamemnon. We know about how he sacrificed Iphigenia. I mean, of course, she's going to be mad that he killed her daughter. So like just the, the idea that her behavior could possibly be interpreted as villainous behavior just strikes me as rank misogyny. I mean, in even to top it off, at the end of, of the war, he takes Cassandra, right? You know, he's like, I have not learned my lesson. I am now going to also have this woman. Um, you know, I didn't learn the last time about the plagues. Yeah. And the other thing that I could never understand um, when people were kind of interpreting Clytemnestra's behavior is I remember being taught that in that play that when he brings back Cassandra, um, the reason that Clytemnestra then kills Cassandra is out of sexual jealousy. And I remember thinking she has no interest in Agamemnon. It's not the only emotion she would feel towards Cassandra would surely be pity that this woman has had to endure her husband rather than any idea that she would she would be jealous or that she wouldn't like him having another woman. I think that the only reason that she wouldn't would be out of sympathy for the poor woman who had to experience that. It tells you more about the society that we've all grown up with um, interpreting these myths than it does about the myths themselves in a weird way. Yeah, I think that that kind of irresistible compulsion to pit women against one another, which again happens with, like I said, the comparison between Clytemnestra and Penelope, just, you know, these women are not rivals in any way. They're both really interesting, intelligent characters of Greek mythology in their own right. You don't need to compare them to one another just because they are both women, both wives. The thing about Clytemnestra and Penelope is during Penelope's 20 years when her husband's away and Clytemnestra's 10 years is they are running their kingdoms. In Clytemnestra's case, like, that's a quite a big trading area that she's in charge of. You know, she's got to fend off people who want to invade or who see a power grab. Like, she's got a lot of, and Penelope's doing the same, but Ithaca's much smaller and much further away from sort of the mainland action of Greece. And we know from the from the Odyssey how many suitors were there for Penelope over the past 20 years. How many did Clytemnestra have? Like, how much more difficult was her job to essentially keep Agamemnon's kingdom for him? A kingdom that he's only in for maybe, like, what, five years, 10 years? Oh, no, more than that, because Iphigenia is 14, so 14 years. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, like working out timelines, it's just... Yeah, I, th I think the timeline is always a bit fuzzy. Um... But also, like, Aegisthus is kind of a buffer for Clytemnestra for suitors, right? Yeah, I think the fact that she has him, that, that she doesn't have to be like Penelope, um, who obviously can't, is, is in this impossible situation and can't, she can't have a man to kind of, to be there. Well, yeah, like you say, as a buffer. At least Clytemnestra can do that and Aegisthus seems to be somebody. So again, kind of going back to, you know, I talked about starting with Macbeth. She's got that kind of, Lady Macbeth quality about her that she's pulling the strings. I mean, all right, Lady Macbeth is definitely more murderous than Clytemnestra, but you know. I mean, if anything, the ancient Greeks have taught me to have a lot of sympathy for women who murder their families because it's always really well deserved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I don't know if it is in Medea's case. Like, it is with her sons, but not her brother. Her brother was just a wrong place, wrong time. Medea is one of those stories where I always find myself saying, well, you know, it is wrong to kill your children, <laughs> but... Uh... Oh, I'm not, argu- I'm not arguing that. It's more her brother who she hacks to pieces to get her father to stop chasing them. Maybe she just really didn't like her brother. Yeah, maybe. I mean, her father was was pretty awful. Maybe maybe her brother was in the same mold. We don't know. So your next novel that you're you're working on is about Atalanta. What drew you to the story of Atalanta? Or what wouldn't have drawn you to that story? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, good point. A complete contrast to the stories um, that I handle in a lecture. So that novel is so dark. And Atalanta's story is so much more fun and so much lighter in so many ways. In Electra, all of these women are so very much restricted by the fact that they are women and they are growing up in a society that, you know, is, is full of, like we said, rank misogyny. Whereas Atalanta grows up outside of all of that. This is what I really, really loved about having her as a heroine that she grows up in the forest of Arcadia and um, that her family are bears rather than people when she's a baby and as far as I know they have no issues with misogyny I don't know maybe a a bit I'm not sure so she's she just grows up I guess kind of genderless in in many ways that she just has no concept that as a woman she should be any different to a man so when she goes to join the Argonauts like why wouldn't she join this quest what would what would hold her back from doing it and she doesn't have any ideas about how a woman is supposed to be submissive or obedient or not as good as men so that was just such an exciting prospect of somebody to write about and it felt like such a breath of fresh air i mean i'm sure there are dark parts to it but it's a lighter story still gonna end the way all greek myths end although to be fair as far as hero myths goes hers doesn't end the worst (laughs) yeah it's still greek myth obviously this has been so wonderful thank you so much for coming on to chat with us yeah oh thank you thanks so much for having me back again i really enjoyed it where can people find you um online jenny oh um so you can find me on instagram jennifer.saint.author or um twitter it's at jenny saint and electra is out now in bookshops in us and the uk and australia and i'm sure it will be coming to the rest of the world at some point in time and ariadne is out now as well so we highly encourage you go pick up a copy oh thank you very much Thank you so much. This has been so great. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.